Chris Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Natter, just talking to teachers. Okay, so uh, welcome Professor Hirsch to the podcast. Thanks, I'm uh, very, very happy to be here. And to, I, I'm very glad that that my work has been read in the UK. Well, you work, as, as you know, and you've done quite a few podcasts recently and interviews for the TEDs and for various other places. Um, your work has been hugely influential in the UK uh, on education policy, and we're going to touch on some of that. But the main focus of today is going to be your new John Cap book, which is How to Educate a Citizen. So could you just start by telling listeners about the process of writing what you've described as your farewell book and why you are a concerned educator? Well, as you know, the political situation in the United States and the social situation has gotten more polarized and antagonistic and uh, less unified than in a long time. But at the same time in the United States, our uh, reading scores have declined quite significantly. Uh, It turns out that in the 50s, the United States was number one in adult literacy. And uh, in the latest PISA rankings, after starting, when the PISA rankings, I'm assuming your audience knows exactly what PISA is, uh, the Program for International Student Assessment. When those rankings started in 2000, uh, the USA ranked 15, which is not very good. And now it ranks 25. So uh, it, we are obviously continuing to slide in our ability to read and write. And that is particularly worrisome for the uni- unity of a nation. And that would hold for Great Britain as well. I, I don't know where your rankings are, but that those rankings, you can correlate uh, in general the, the the level of, uh, for an advanced and developed country, certainly, the level of political and social unity in a country, I think you can probably measure by its level of reading comprehension, reading and writing scores. Uh, in other words, its ability to, uh, of people to communicate effectively with one another. And uh, and I'll still guess I'll continue on, on uh, from that point that since the social unity in the United States has declined along with our reading scores, um, that is something I felt impelled to write about because my professional work (laughs) happened to be in two subjects that are highly relevant to elementary education, even though they were in English literature. My my, uh, first a subject, my dissertation, was on Wordsworth and a German philosopher, Schelling. Wordsworth was the one who says, trailing clouds of glory till we come from God who is our home. Uh, and he, he said, not in other nakedness uh, uh, do, does, do our soul arrive in the, uh, in the world. And of course, Rousseau had made the same point. For, uh, more technically in education, that the nature has given us, as it were, 
an implicit blueprint that needs to be followed. And if you go against nature, you're doing something that's basically harmful and unhealthy. And that idea is very strong in early education in both the UK and the United States. The other technical uh, subject that was important in my professional career was a theory of interpretation. I wrote a book on theory of interpretation in, in the late 60s uh, because, uh, and it was opposed to new criticism, which said you just look at the, at the language to determine uh, what a poem means. And uh, that had proved to be quite unsatisfactory because if you do that, then everybody is in mad disagreement about what the poem means or what the novel means. And I said, well, it's, <laughs> that's an affront to one's, one has instincts as a scientist. <laughs> that thesis of new criticism was in, uh, it was very uncomfortable to me. And I, I looked into psycholinguistics pretty thoroughly and it just happened that just at that time, uh, I, I, I had some real big shots that I had to attack and, and confront. Um, but just at that time, psycholinguistics was showing that language does not and cannot speak its own meaning. That one of this discovery was late to, in coming. I mean, it came to cognitive science only in the 1970s. And it said that, no, you cannot understand human speech without a lot of relevant background knowledge that is silent and unheard. And this has nothing to do with learning the technical aspects of language, uh, what a verb is and what a command or statement is and that sort of thing. Not, not the sort of universal characteristics of the physical side of language, no. To understand meaning, you always had to, and language always assumed a lot of background knowledge between you and the speaker and or you and the writer. And uh, my example in, in this latest book was Polly put the kettle on, we'll all have tea. Well, put the kettle on what? And what is in the kettle? And having tea, what is that about? And that, in other words, the dictionary meanings of those words uh, would not suffice to, as it were, obey the command in the little nursery rhyme. And that example, uh, I, I've thought about it even more. You can unpack it a great deal. It's understood differently in or it was understood differently earlier on in Britain than it was in the United States. Uh, but I won't go into those details. But in any case, uh, <laughs> what that example as be being a command showed me, well, isn't that interesting? You give a very brief command and then somebody can run off and do something very complicated. And, uh, and think of how important that is in uh, if you want a whole group of people to act intelligently and uh, do something in harmony and effectively. 
which is, of course, the reason in evolution why uh, human beings have survived so well, is that they created these groups that act as a, a coherent organism because they evolved language. And the way language evolved was so you could give these short commands uh, and they would have very precise meanings and you could do it very fast and efficiently. But of course, a side effect of that was that the, the utterance to be efficient had to be brief. That meant it had to be to those who didn't have the background knowledge, it, it had to be ambiguous and imprecise and inexplicit and so on. But to people who shared the background knowledge uh, that it, it takes to understand what having tea is, then that would make a coherent tribe that could kill mastodons and, uh, and unfortunately other tribes as well. So we evolved these big brains uh, <laughs> precisely to make that store of vocabulary and background knowledge so that these commands could be obeyed and, and groups could act uh, in, in an intelligent way. And so you can see that this shared knowledge is highly important in making a coherent tribe. The tribal lore is inherent to uh, interpretation. And so that's why Wordsworth was wrong. Uh, Wordsworth said we came clouds of glory and uh, we don't. We come with a blank slate, just as John Locke uh, asserted. And uh, we depend on the, the tribe and the adults of the tribe to teach us the background knowledge we need to communicate with each other. So that's by way of prelude, I would say to why we evolved this universal peculiarity of human language, that it doesn't speak its own meaning. You have to have, uh, to understand it in detail and unambiguously, you have to share a lot of background knowledge with your other uses of language. Yeah, so absolutely. that's why a reading test is a is a knowledge test. To understand the meaning of a passage on a reading test, you have to know a hell of a lot. Uh, to to choose the, <laughs> usually have at least four alternatives and uh, four possibilities, and you to choose the right one, you have to have the right background knowledge, and you have to so to understand speech basically, and to raise the literacy levels of young people and ultimately your citizens, you have to learn a lot of things in common. That's the long and the short of uh, that disquisition about shared language and shared knowledge. Yeah, and so that's it, Phil. That's my little. No, that was that's that's brilliant, and it was really interesting that uh, you've called it a trivial example that illustrates a far from trivial truth about language. The poly yeah. put the kettle on, and I actually yeah. tried that with um, school age pupils that I'm teaching, and actually there was another shared understanding that they um, associated have tea with the evening meal, which is um, dare I say more of a working class English uh, phrase. For the evening meal if, if you are oh yes that's another that's isn't that a wonderful example because the the nursery rhyme 
uh, I think, implied a four o'clock uh, uh, afternoon affair with with cakes and company, and and uh, the 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 uh, current uh, meaning of tea is uh, is the is the evening meal. Well, and in Britain, I'm I'm not I don't remember it very particularly well. But in any case, it's uh, whatever it means uh, today. It's a darn good example of uh, of how you need. Uh, the right background knowledge to understand what's being met. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, well, it'll be in sort of a north-south divide in the UK around and possibly across class lines as well. Uh, yes. As to whether yes. you describe your evening meal as dinner or... Exactly, exactly. Uh, yes, and how... how <laughs> that's, that's an equally good example. But uh, it, it may be a cultural and social divide. But on the other hand, if you want a unified country, people have to know what the normal meaning is in print and so on. Uh, what it, when when you when you are trying to communicate with people, you want to make sure that there's a there's a heck of a lot of shared background knowledge uh, that that your your young students or your young pupils have been taught. Well, that's perfect. That takes us nicely into. The next section of part one. So part one uh, is called the decline of the common school. So uh, following on the themes that you talked about there, when did American schools abandon commonality? And do you see this process repeated in other countries, for example, in your experience in the UK as well? Yes. Well, I think uh, there were there were numerous countries that abandoned reading, writing, and arithmetic, and and the desks all facing the front of the room with the teacher being strict and say, you have to learn this and memorize that. And there was a reaction against that style of teaching. Uh, uh, the saying in the United States is that the teacher shouldn't be a sage on the stage. The, the teacher should be a guide on the side. Well, actually, <laughs> what my book is saying that a teacher jolly well should be a sage on the stage and the kids should all learn a lot of the same things and and learn from the teacher because it's the the duty of the adults to teach the lore of the tribe and but the importance of the where the romantics came in and influenced uh, uh, a lot of european countries and it influenced the united states too so-called progressive education. Actually, in in the United States, um, they physically unbolted the desks from the floor and had them faced every which way, and the teacher would wander around the room, and and uh, children would study different things. They wouldn't all study the same thing. That has, by the way, an enormously inegalitarian effect, because when the students are all studying different things, and if there is a sort of general knowledge that it takes to be a literate person in your country who communicates well with other citizens, then that means that children from disadvantaged circumstances where the parents have not the, the, with parents who are not very literate, those children will also end up not being very literate. And that's why there's a lot of resentment against what I'm 
uh, <laughs> recommending because everybody says, oh, you just want us to learn upper class culture. And that, I've come to think that culture is the wrong word to use about this shared knowledge. It should just be called, print. I would say print knowledge would be a good word for it. The print knowledge of a, of a, a nation, the print is the, is the invention that allowed big nations to arise so that communications could be uh, effectively done at long distances and the, the, this common language could be effectively deployed to, to all the citizens. The, the normalization of language and the invention of printing uh, made uniformity of schooling, a certain amount of content uniformly, uh, technically essential to unify a country. And to forget that basic element, to think of reading and writing as, and that's when that disappeared, when that commonality disappeared, the nation gets weakened. And uh, to see that, uh, the reasons for it, uh, in this simple, Polly put the kettle on example, it's very important that this get widespread. And, and perhaps you, we need better examples, but what we need is an army of people who know the psycholinguistic uh, principles about language, who know how integrate communication through language is dependent on shared background knowledge. Absolutely. Um, and I know that you've spoke recently to um, John Severs at the TES around the UK's move towards a more knowledge-rich curriculum. And what I'm really interested in the next chapter, when you talk about the child-centred classroom, we've seen quite a move away from that. And you interview educators on their perspectives on both the child-centred and the knowledge-centred schools. So how did educators contrast those two uh, different kinds of schools? It was very interesting. I, it, You know, the uh, Greek mythical character Tiresias, uh, T.S. Eliot mentions him uh, early on in the wasteland. Uh, he he uh, lived half of his life as a woman and half of his life as a man. Uh, and uh, these two teachers were my Tiresias figures because they had spent half of their careers teaching child-centered uh, unbolt the desks, uh, uh, each child should pursue his own uh, constructive uh, education in his own way with the teacher circulating around the room. They spent half of their careers doing that. And when core knowledge came along, it happened that the core knowledge is the name of the specific curriculum that my foundation sponsors. But, you know, the, you could it could be any specific uh, cumulative curriculum that could work equally well if it was trying to uh, inform the children in this print knowledge that I, I've talked about. And so they were good uh, what do they call participant observers or, of, of these two um, forms of schooling. And I was uh, bowled over. I simply printed the uh, excerpts of the the precise um, recording of of what they were saying to me, uh, 
on on my iPhone and somebody and somebody typed it all up and that was the second chapter. It was I rearranged it under headings, but it was all unrehearsed and it was I thought very striking. Uh, I don't know how it came across to you, but the difference uh, in the enthusiasm of children when everybody was all on board um, and understanding what was going on and the engagement even of the parents in this uh, knowledge that they were gaining uh, was enormous. So the whole idea that you, that it's more child-centered to let everybody off doing as isolated personal thing, uh, or the group thing with uh, small groups of children, that turned out to be uh, not the case. I mean, it, it's the uh, propaganda, but it's not the case uh, that st students and teachers like it a lot more. And w one of the, you, you may want to come to this later, but one of the interesting features of all this is the children like it, the parents like it, the parents particularly like it because their kids are learning so much and are getting so smart. And so, unfortunately, uh, there aren't all that many examples, but even when there are local examples, still the, um, the romantic point of view has such power in our schools of education that uh, our, our public school systems don't pay any attention to these isolated uh, examples of excellence. Anyway, uh, yes, that second chapter in, uh, portrayed those two teachers who pointed to the, uh, not just the better results, but, uh, but the, uh, the better uh, joy and learning that uh, the, these children had from all levels of society and particularly for disadvantaged kids uh, the the evidence is that uh, advantaged kids uh, learn about uh, half in a couple of years half a standard deviation better reading scores than other advantaged kids disadvantaged kids have twice that amount of gain uh, they have more to learn, that's why. Anyway, so that's my, that was my experience with the two teachers and I'm grateful to uh, the person who suggested I, I actually do that. And I'm grateful to the technology that allowed it all to happen. Uh, so. Well, it's, it's yeah. a fascinating chapter and I, I might be mixing my, uh, my, my Greek uh, myths, but to extend the Tiresias, they, they certainly did tell the truth, didn't they? <laughs> and in, in terms of you know listeners in the in the uk um what we are experiencing very much is very similar along the same lines as they were, they were talking about in there so you know you, you've got uh kathy and you've got michelle kathy uh, and michelle right right, it, right it's absolutely brilliant and just just as, a, as an aside to this at the moment obviously we are just um returning to school from september in our new you know, I didn't want to mention COVID, but I knew COVID secure schools. But what you were talking about there in terms of, you know, classroom layouts and the way that teachers are becoming back to be on the stage on the stage. A lot of the recovery plans in schools to get back into school has meant that desks are now facing the front. 
teachers are spending much more time at the front of the classroom because they can. <laughs> it's also meaning we have longer lessons more content knowledge and exactly what you said then in terms of the reports we are getting that kids are happier parents are happier they feel safer they're achieving more and i work in a school that um has an 80 percent pupil premium so that's a disadvantaged kind of cohort 80 percent of our pupils receive free school meals and we are seeing a report that they are a lot happier to be taught in roles with a knowledgeable teacher at the front of the classroom and very tight uh, and secure behavior policies so we can totally empathize with what oh, I, have about. you written that up anywhere or, uh, has anyone I would love to have it uh, uh, to see some report about that because it might help in our <laughs> little campaign to well, yeah, with, with change pleasure. people's minds. Yeah, they do that. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so moving on from that then. So um, in the next chapter, you, you talk about the dazzling success stories of shared knowledge schools. So in those shared knowledge schools, why does nobody leave? Oh, I, I, the, 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 the anecdote that to me was most memorable, there was a group of uh, seven uh, core knowledge schools in the, in the poorest part of New York City, uh, where uh, none of the uh, parents are well-educated and mostly low income. And the, and the children in these schools win citywide debate contests now, it's, uh, and they all go into select high schools. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, quite a wonderful uh, success story. Uh, but the story about these schools that were, <laughs> when you say nobody leaves, I, uh, because uh, the founder, Jeff Litt, uh, told me that that was the phrase he didn't, nobody leaves and therefore there's a huge uh, press of uh, applicants to the schools that uh, of disappointed parents and students who can't get in uh, because he only has spaces for kindergarten anyway uh, his uh, I, I said to the assistant superintendent well if nobody, if nobody leaves, what happens when parents get, say, a good job in Westchester County, which is the richest suburb of New York City? And he says, well, they send their child, they bust their child from Westchester back to the South Bronx. And this, not only that, Westchester County has to pay us to educate that child. And it has happened every time we've had such a move. I thought that was the most astonishing because, <laughs> because they liked this coherent school a lot better than the elegant uh, progressive school in, in Westchester County. Of course, it's, it's less hard on those students in Westchester County because they come from homes that are giving them some of the basic education that they need. Anyway, uh, th th those stories in, in that section of the book were, were very heartening to me. And the pictures that they, that after I had written that chapter, the uh, principal uh, sent me two pieces of news. One is that they had won all the categories in the citywide uh, debate contest. And secondly, 
that every single graduate of their eighth grade uh, had gained admission to uh, a select high school. Some of them very difficult to get into. And they're all, you know, through exams that the uh, eighth graders have to take. So it's pretty striking evidence of what a coherent curriculum, a sequence coherent curriculum that builds knowledge for everybody systematically has on equity and quality of education. Brilliant. And the, the next chapter is something of a um, a recurring theme on the podcast. So the next chapter talks about the problem starts at our teacher training institutes. And like I said, that's been quite the, quite the recurring theme on this podcast, whether it be from behaviour uh, to the curriculum. So um, just to give you a bit of context, the evidence based movement here has, has shifted the goalposts in the UK. But there's, you know, there's still a often political resistance coupled with a little bit of cherry picking evidence to suit a particular viewpoint. So did your findings or do your findings put uh, this down to ignorance of best practice or is it to active resistance? Well, actually, it, the, it, the basic point of my critique of, of the ed schools is uh, that they have persisted in the Wordsworthian, Rousseauian uh, notion that nature knows best and the individuality, the soul of the child should be honored. Uh, that, that has led to disastrous results in, for equity and quality and even national unity. And that that chapter about the ed schools uh, is really in conjunction also with the next chapter, which is about the science, because my complaint is that the ed schools aren't paying attention to the science. Uh, so that what is taught in our universities over at the ed schools uh, is, is different from what is taught in the cognitive science and the brain science uh, departments of the university. That's an unac simply unacceptable. And I've even found subsequently to, to writing those chapters, uh, there has been not just some complaints among regular cognitive psychologists uh, about uh, the educational psychologists, not uh, about uh, their conclusions, but there was one incident where uh, the uh, cognitive scientist, very, it's just coming out now, did a study, uh, actually examined in detail the research uh, which had led to the conclusions which were just opposite to their conclusions about, particularly about so-called constructivism. I don't know whether you've dealt with that subject, but it's very big in the United States, meaning the child should discover or find out things on his own and it learns, the novice learns much better when, when that's done. That uh, has been uh, shown to be un not the case. And yet it won't go away as a, as a practice. So in any case, uh, what this particular uh, scientist showed was how bad the experiments and the scientific data were that 
had led people to continue this conclusion about uh, constructivist practice. Uh, I, I don't know whether your listeners are familiar with that term, constructivism. Phil, you can enlighten me on that. But it it it, it almost smacks of uh, intellectual dishonesty, and it's very worrisome. But the reason it persists is this faith that nature can do no wrong. So that my chapter heading uh, was that uh, actually what we're finding out is that nature says culture should prevail in human beings. We're not like what Horace Mann called the lower orders of animal animated creation. <clears throat> so... <laughs> Well, just, just, on, just on that, in terms of the constructivism, I'm sure that listeners are aware of that. I mean, I spoke to Paul Kirshner um, fairly recently about some of the ideas. And, and you've called. Oh, and did you talk to Paul Kirshner? I did talk to Paul Kirshner, yes. Oh, yeah. I, would, I would love to meet him. I, <laughs> uh, yes, because that article, uh, there were, he, he and his colleagues did uh, three articles and that were splendid. And. Uh, well, has he actually uh, been looking into the quality of the research that that keeps this discovery learning going? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not sure about that, but I've just looked at where you've quoted some of his work towards the end about uh, minimal yeah. guidance instruction. Yes. And he did talk in detail about that. Excellent. Well, anyway... Uh, Oh, you, you talked about uh, my uh, celebration of his work? <laughs> yes, because he, he refers to it in his latest book, doesn't he? Yes, I do, <laughs> definitely. Anyway, yes, that's, but I guess you could really combine those two chapters. One is, uh, but uh, there's another, actually, uh, uh, perhaps the uh, the other, that's, that's what's wrong with the, uh, the pedagogy, the idea of uh, letting children uh, work on their own, particularly novices, and to and discuss things with each other instead of listening to the teacher. That's, that's that line of uh, difference between uh, what the uh, mainline scientists are finding out and what the uh, educators are finding, uh, claiming. Uh, but there's another... Um, equally important uh, discovery in, in recent, and this is very recent in, in brain research. And that is this whole notion, the words worthy and we're trailing, trailing clouds of glory uh, when we're born. Um, and we have to really, then uh, the child is father of the man, as Wordsworth put it. Uh, Rousseau's the real father of that, uh, line of thought, and the, followed by Pestalozzi, the, that tradition is highly influential and still taught in uh, our schools of education. But it turns out that that principle has been essentially demolished by this brain science, which has discussed. Anybody who wants to look it up can do so online by typing in two words cortical plasticity and they will find out the 
cortical, the cortex is the, the neocortex of the human brain is the, is the big part that we developed so that we could use language and communicate with each other and therefore sort of take over the world. Uh, but uh, what they've discovered in that term plasticity is that Locke was right. We don't come trailing clouds of glory. He called it a white paper or a blank slate or a tabula rasa. That child, <laughs> so all this essentializing of culture and racializing of culture and so on is a big mistake. Every baby is white, black, red, yellow. Every baby is born with the same blank slate. That's nothing there. There are no clouds of glory in the neocortex because nature discovered it was a good idea to let the grown-ups train the child into what was going to be useful in that particular tribe and uh, what was what they had learned in order to survive. That proved to be the best survival technique, not to come uh, now, that doesn't mean human beings don't have a heck of a lot of instincts but uh, and, and temperament and so on. But basically, those are in, not in the neocortex where school learning and where language dominates. Yeah, so that, that's in the chapter on culture, not nature knows best, says nature. And as you said, it starts with the quote from uh, John Locke. And the essay concerns. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And you talk about experience there. So a follow-up question to that is, and you've touched on some of it there, but how do we know that there is no innate blueprint for the development of a child and uh, his or her brain? Yes, we well, we know it. <laughs> I just know what I read in the article, in the papers, as they say. Uh, it, but these happen to be scientific papers. And I have corresponded with also with some of these researchers, and it's very exciting stuff going on. For example, uh, this work has uncovered a neuron that you won't find anywhere in the educational literature because it's a new discovery. But there's a there's a neuron in the human brain, in the neocortex, that you don't find uh, in uh, apes and uh, other creatures. Uh, and that is called the rose hip neuron, which is a very elegant little thing. It has in the same, in one neuron, it has a number of different nodules that are looking in different directions. So it's a little, it's, it's a neuron that's a little brain of its own, as it were. Fascinating stuff going on, and which could never be done before the uh, actual techniques were available to uh, do research of this kind at the, at the neuron level, or as one of the papers. Well, the paper that caught my eye on this subject was called The Microcircuitry of the Neocortex as a Tabula Rasa. So you bring in the Lockean phrase in connection with this elaborate uh, uh, molecular level research on the on the human brain, it was very striking. Anyway, it's uh, that's a brave new world, and and none of it is helpful to the doctrine that our education schools are teaching. And uh, I I think so. There has to be a revolution 
educational revolution, uh, nothing less than that. If, if you want to improve your education and the unity of your country, that's the long and the short of it. Yeah, fascinating stuff. So when we get into the lessons in chapter six of educational failure and successes around the world. So we're going to get to talk about Sweden and France in a minute. Um, the U- the UK's and, and England specifically um, isn't touched on here. But just to give you a little bit of information, Professor Hirsch, in terms of where we're going with the reading scores. So uh-huh. we, we um, you know, in the UK and in some of the schools I'm working are adopting reading canons. So we're adopting shared texts that we would uh, collectively read together as form groups and year groups at particular times of the day to kind of share that cultural literacy and in share those experiences. So we've chosen shared literacy canons and kind of moved quite a lot away from constructivist ideas that you're talking about there. So hopefully we'll see an increase in the UK's uh, PISA scores. But the, the, Well, I wish you the best and, and it would be wonderful. And if we, and I'll try to keep track of that because maybe if we're still holding together in the USA, we'll uh, we'll take note. Yeah, and I spoke to uh, Doug Lamarff quite a lot about that because we use some of his work from from reading Reconsidered. Um, in in thinking uh, who, about who is it? I didn't catch the name. So it's Doug Lamarff. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. So the question we're going to talk about is you discuss in chapter six, the lessons of educational success and failure around the world. Um, and listeners may be aware of the Swedish story. But what fascinated me is what happened to France when it decided to adopt constructivist ideas. So please, could you describe the vastness, radicalness and suddenness of the change and the subsequent effects of that? Yeah, well, uh, I, th- I think it would be most useful I, I, I use Sweden and Germany and uh, France chiefly as my examples, but by far the most useful one because it's so it embraces so many years. It's a real longitudinal study, and not only does it embrace many years, but there are detailed records as though it were with millions of students, the most elaborate uh, psychological or, uh, or educational experiment you could imagine. And that's the French in France. You know, there was a saying that at any, any particular day, a young French student anywhere in France would be studying the same lesson. And that was basically uh, the case up till about 1970. And uh, the, <laughs> I, I won't go into too many details, but the French became enamored after uh, 19, the, after the uh, victory over the Nazis in uh, 1945. They, they became quite enthusiastic about everything American and about even Coca-Cola. And that uh, enthusiasm for things American unfortunately shifted over. We want to be like the Americans, so let's copy their educational practices. And so in, I can't remember the exact date. Um, It was after student riots in the 60s and so on. So somewhere in the 70s, um, later 70s, I think it was, the, they completely changed their educational system um, from 
the French, everybody studying the same thing at the same day, to every school should choose its own topic and the students within the school should be individualized as well, just like the Americans. And uh, the French have their own tests, not the PISA tests. They have their own very elaborate tests and which they make and which they assort according to social class. And uh, the results are so precise and so striking that, uh, and by the way, no scientific experiment could be more decisive than the French experiment because of the numbers of students involved and the precision of the measurements. Uh, it's uh, and the uh, also the the careful division of the results by social class, and you see what happens is uh, it, it, in the old system there was a a great f funnel towards the narrow end. No matter what social class you came from, everybody got a pretty high mark uh, in in literacy by the. By the first uh, four or five years of using this new Americanized, uh, child-centered approach, uh, you began to see the, the funnel widening. Again, uh, you, you're turning the funnel around. Instead of bringing everybody to a common high degree, you were uh, everybody was descending and... Uh, dividing themselves according to social class. And and it just got worse as the next test went on. And I don't know what's currently happening in France. I haven't kept up. But that experiment is essentially decisive. And uh, I, I don't think that's why I, I think it's the only one really worth discussing because uh, nothing can compare to that in, in educational research, as decisive as that, because it was uh, so carefully monitored, <laughs> you know, the, even though they, uh, the French uh, made local control the new mantra of uh, their elementary education, they still kept very precise central uh, in the central government, very precise records of each district. So it's it's the, I would say, it's the educational experiment of the 20th century. It's the one that counts for most because uh, I think any uh, scientist would tell you that when you're dealing with millions of students in that way, uh, the... Um, variables get washed out you're really seeing um you don't have to worry too much about controls because oh, well there was a, a kind of control also in that experiment is that is the tests the tests given at these uh, three different points of time were the same tests so there was a, a certainly that kind of uh control in the experiment but the change in uh, policy was is also uh, very well documented. And so if you want to get division and a, a loss of equity in a country, just adopt <laughs> the, the uh, romantic uh, 
child-centered principles that the USA has been operating on for, oh, half a century and more. Yeah, and there's a fascinating chap- uh, section in the chapter, if I may read your own work back to you, Professor Hirsch. So it says, following on from that, the achievement gap in France between rich and poor students then widened enormously. So the chart shows how the social classes were affected, uh, a change that destroyed the formerly egalitarian nature of French education. Um, so it's a paradox that the intellectual left in France um, has instigated educational reforms that penalise the poor and favour the rich. So does that is that further evidence that constructivist methods damage already disadvantaged learners? Absolutely. Yes. Well, thanks for reading uh, my book with such care. I, this is a new experience for me because uh, my task is usually to explain to the interviewer and <laughs> oh, no, to an audience what, what I actually have said. Oh, no, wait, I've read all of your right, right back from the Dictionary of Cultural Literacy, which is still sitting on our table. Um, we do we do flick through that uh, regularly in the household. So we, we, we're big fans and big readers. So it's a, that's why it's an honor to speak to you today. Well, thank you, sir. Yes. And that just takes into the afterword. So in the afterword, again, just to quote you uh, back to yourself, you've said that uh, in truth, the uh, entrenched institutions could not change overnight, even if they wanted to. But we must not give up. Not only is your child's future at stake, but so is that of our nation. So in the afterword, what do you suggest can be done right now? Well, I I can't remember that precisely, Phil, but I probably uh, said that they they need to agitate in favor of this change. People do, but also if anybody who wanted to can can download a, a common curriculum for free uh, from my foundation, which is called the Core Knowledge Foundation. And uh, but I also have. Uh, the, suggested that uh, the the standards, the school standards, in our country it has to be done by each individual state. They have the legal authority for setting standards for elementary education. And uh, what I said about uh, that practical element was that the the parents uh, should insist that uh, the legislatures come up with a specific uh, sequence of topics for each grade. That's, uh, of course, uh, heresy, but <laughs> I'm, I'm too old to bother burning at the stake. So anyway. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's a perfect place will, <laughs> to end. The I, will, I will leave it. I will leave it at, at that. But yes, I'm promoting heresy at the end. But I, I am promoting putting pressure on our legislators to to do something courageous. So um, you, just to finish off, you said before that, um, you know, in terms of a reaction to the book, there's been a huge reaction to the book over here. I know that you've done quite a few podcasts and, um, you know, YouTube videos and things. So I think I signpost listeners to ones with Martin Robinson and David Dider, the one with the Tez uh, with John Severs as well mentioned before. So there's a lot of interest in the UK about the book. And I said at the beginning, the influence that you've had on the education policy um, is massive over here. So 
Uh, just to finish off by saying the book is How to Educate a Citizen. That is available everywhere uh, via John Cat and um, all good bookshops. And as we sometimes say, and Craig Barton says, all evil ones too. Um, and just to finish off, could you advise, is there any other speaking events that you're doing? I know it's difficult with restrictions, but are there any other events that you've got planned in the near future? No, I, uh, I, th there's nothing of any consequence. Uh, we're so absorbed in our election right now that I, uh, I as am I, that uh, <laughs> nobody can think much of anything else. Uh, that'll be over, and I hope we'll have some. I hope there'll be some uh, response to the book after that. Uh, be, because, as I say, I think the uh, the issues are uh, pretty significant for any modern country. Really, what we've what we've discovered, and considering the the case of uh, the social disunity that's in the United States right now, uh, it's it's pretty significant. Uh, though the problem, of course, with this kind of uh, point to be made is that it's long ranged because you're you're saying you have to you have to do better with five and six year olds and seven year olds and eight year olds and you still have uh, the majority of your population which whose literacy rates are going down but i hope the uk avoids this uh, now crisis in in the united states Okay, so just remains to say it's been an honour to speak to you, Professor Hirsch, today. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, good luck with the book. It's, a, it's an excellent read. Like I said, I've gone cover to cover a few times on this. So again, How to Educate a Citizen is available everywhere uh, now. Thank you again, Professor Hirsch. Much appreciated. Well, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Miller Snatter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast Pedagogy, listening to teachers. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. So, um, hello everybody. Um, you've obviously just listened to the very nice jingles that Phil's put over the start of this first Teacher Five-A-Day podcast. Um, really pleased to welcome Abigail Mann, uh, Abby Mann, to this first, hopefully, 20 minutes worth of conversation, even though we've just been online for about 40, talking about nothing. So we thought we'd go through a little bit of um, Abby's expertise, um, bearing in mind her Live Well, Teach Well books and uh, Live Well, Learn Well book that's due out soon, uh, and some tips from there, uh, and then a little bit about her career and then maybe some advice on research to have a look at. So, uh, hello, Abby. Hello, nice right. to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> Good day at work. Not bad, thank you. How was yours? Yeah, mine was excellent. Really <laughs> enjoying myself at the minute. Thoroughly enjoying life in a global pandemic. What's the best thing that happened to you today? Um, it's, it's the social, economic and environmental impacts in the short and medium term. So Lovely. Becoming adaptable and using new technology to engage my professional learning. Wow. Yeah. And dealt with a couple of fights and <laughs> some disgruntled teachers and that sort of thing. That's Apart more like that, it. Cracking day. What about you? What was your best part of your day? Um, best part of my day today was 
ta uh, teaching about post-colonial Nigeria, looking at the text Things Fall Apart with my year 13s, um, and the pigeon that managed to get into the connecting tunnel of the two buildings. <laughs> did, it, did it get out alive? It did, just, yeah. Thank goodness for that. Very good. <laughs> so just to recap a little bit, you've gone from a, a, a teacher of 12 years now, you've gone from citizenship teacher to associate assistant head. Yep, that's right. Yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about Yeah, so I started, um, I started as a citizenship teacher, as an unqualified teacher, as I was, my degree is actually in law, not English, so I was trying to um, do an open university literature course um, at the same time. And then I eventually got onto the GTP and trained in English and law um, and quite quickly afterward became second in English, uh, followed by head of house and then lead practitioner all in all in the first school. And then Where I moved was that on. School? That was in Melton Mowbray, okay. wonderful school called Longfield, really yeah. nice place. And then I moved out of the Midlands down to Hertfordshire and taught at a school in Stevenage for uh, a couple of years as a lead practitioner. Right. Um, and I was leading whole school literacy and uh, NQTs across the Stevenage Educational Trust. So there were about 55 NQTs on, okay. the, on the course, which was great fun. And then um, was that and about now, the time that you were getting into the wellbeing stuff? I'm, I'm that's right, yeah. yeah. You've got a visitor um, in the office to go and come and say hello. I did have a visitor, yeah. It's one of my team, but she's disappeared now, mortified. Um, yes, yeah, so that was when the well-being, I mean, to be honest, the well-being was sort of picking up towards the end of my first school okay. um, experience, but then, yeah, definitely took off during the the Stevenage years, shall we say. Yeah. Um, and then I moved on. And pieces about trying to help NQTs? Yes, yeah. And then it was great, I absolutely well loved it. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were fantastic. It was across um, primary and secondary sector as well, so... It was really nice to get an understanding of their, each of their training requirements and also um, some of the pressures and challenges that they each faced based on whether they were primary and secondary as well. It's quite different um, some of the yeah. things that they have to do. Yeah. Just in terms of um, planning, for example, quite a lot of primary school teachers at that time were still expected to do individual lesson plans yeah. and submit them the week before. Yeah. Um, and that's something that the secondary sector hadn't hadn't been dealing with for a while. So it was it was a nice experience actually to to train train them and and see where they were at with things. And that maybe something we'll pick up later on. But that whole thing about helping newly qualified teachers or recently qualified teachers become expert in what they do, I think, is a a, yeah. a big well-being discussion to have. I think. Yeah, I agree. It's it's so important to well-being that you are an effective teacher fairly quickly as well. So that was the first two schools? Yep, and then the current place that I'm in now is a, a wonderful school called Whitefield School. We're in North London, in Barnet. Right. Um, incredibly diverse school. I think we have about 80% um, of our learners are um, English as, as an additional language. Yep. And it's wonderful. Um, I took on the role of Director of Learning in English uh, three years ago now. Yep. And, um, just before lockdown, literally about the week before, I was promoted to associate assistant head. Good time. So my first my first meeting as SLT here at this school was a really interesting Zoom meeting or Google Meets, should I say? Um, where I was just thrown straight into the strategic planning of what we're about to take on with lockdown. Yeah. 
I'm not sure how you incorporate well-being into those conversations as well. Really tricky. We had it as a standing item agenda at the oh, very beginning of every meeting. And yeah. it was quite nice to to sort of sit and chat before we got into the business of things. But it, it was tricky. I mean, one yeah. of the things we did as a school, which I found really beneficial, and so, but so did the parents as well, was um, to just call everybody. You know, the first, yeah. well, every week, every yeah. student got a call from somebody. And that, that and the feedback from that well. was... Did you do staff yeah. stuff? Yes, we did. Yeah, we had um, we had the weekly quizzes that were running, and that was quite well well um, attended. Um, and then we also had a sort of Tuesday drop in session, a coffee morning drop in session, where you could just pop on and say hello. And that that was actually really popular as well for those people that didn't want to quiz. Yeah. Um, and then head teacher also ran um, a head teacher session once a week as well. So we did try our best to keep everybody um, connected. But it was certainly it was certainly a tricky time for everyone. And how are people getting on now? Um, honestly, I think yeah. everybody's finding it really tough. Uh, there's so many new systems in place that seem to take up time that perhaps would not have been used in that way. Yeah. Um, for example, we all line up outside in the morning, and the year groups year groups coming in, coming in separately. Yeah. Um, and that takes a good twenty minutes or so of time that teachers would have perhaps been preparing their day and getting themselves set up and ready. So it's, it's a real, it's a shock to the system, I think. And we are, we're still adapting, we're still adapting to it all. It feels like for us, I don't know if it's the same for you, but getting to half term feels like it's, it's the end of a term. It's really tough, isn't it? Yeah. I, honestly, I think it's been the hardest term that I've ever experienced. And I'm beginning to wonder not, when we get, even over. yeah, no, when we get to Christmas, <laughs> I wonder if it's going to feel like the end of an academic year as well. Probably. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. It's, it's just exhausting. It's completely exhausting. So no, no more important time to be considering your own well-being, I guess, as well. Yeah, there we are. So 2013, yeah. 2014, we worked out, I think, you, you were involved with the first incarnation of Teacher Five a Day. Yeah, so I stumbled across Teacher Five a Day um, on, I'd started using Twitter properly in 2013 um, and that was about the time when I was starting to look at my own well-being as well and then I found Teacher Five a Day the following year yeah. that's, where, that's when I met you wasn't it in 2014 I think so. Um, and I popped on down to teach me or Pedigree Hampshire was it? yeah um, and I think I delivered a session yeah I, think I, I can't quite remember I've done I've definitely done plenty since then but yeah, yeah teach five a day was a real focus for me just personally on my own well-being um those were the early days of my teaching career and I was one of those teachers that just tried to do absolutely everything yeah and used yeah. all of my social time my time out of school planning yeah. lessons marking just trying to stay afloat essentially um and Teacher Five a Day. How, how, how did it change what you were doing and how did it help, do you think? Teacher Five a Day? Yeah. I think it allowed me to feel one less guilty about not doing work. Yeah. Um, it, it almost forced me or encouraged me to um, focus on things that improve my well-being, particularly exercise, which I absolutely need in my life to have yeah. a balance. Yeah. Um, I'm utterly miserable if I can't run or hike a mountain or do something outdoors. 
at least once a week. Yeah. Um, and it, it also connected me to people that had the same mindset. Um, and that was really important as well, because you can be in, a, in an environment where um, you sort of hero worshipped if you stay late, if you're the person that stays late, you know, and, yeah. and likewise, if you're leaving early, people have a people can have a perception of you as somebody that's work shy and teacher five a day gave me the opportunity to meet with like-minded people and actually reassess you do you know. think things have changed in the last five to six years do you think people still hold those views about um long, long working hours and that type of thing i would like to think that it's moved on since then I, i'm sure there are institutions across the country where that uh, opinion still exists but I, I do think that people are becoming a, a bit more sensible about it and are trying to focus on going home certainly now in the pandemic you know we're told to leave the building as soon as possible yeah. you know, as soon as teaching ends you know get yourselves home yeah um so maybe maybe there's something something positive to come out of this I don't yeah. know maybe you know this is a uh, nice have you found that it's blurred a little bit though as well so when you do go home, is it is it sort of you stopping what you're doing, or are you doing more things like this? Are you doing more I'm, CPD? Are you doing more um, virtual stuff than you've ever done before? I'm trying my best not to do it, <laughs> not yeah. to do things, um, and particularly for the weekends. You know, I, m I make sure that they are my own. Yeah. Um, but I will if if we do leave school early, I will I will pick up. The laptop and, and do a little bit but not you know like we say 50 is plenty don't we yeah definitely. um and that's always in the back of my mind if i'm working at home how many hours have i worked today yeah. i think yeah. i've had that conversation with a variety of people this week in school um where they're either falling asleep at the wheel on the way home or exhausted or emotional or tearful and yeah. then you strip it back down you say well how many hours are you working, what you're doing and what you're trying to achieve? And it just seems like a sensible thing to keep hold of. You know, don't yeah, work many hours because it's going yeah. to be a long term. And sometimes, particularly with new teachers, you, you know why they're working at um, longer hours and it's because they've not yet developed, you know, the skill and the expertise yeah. and the experience to be able to, to not do it. And that's, yeah. that's why those early years are really, really important. They're given those skills. In order to it's funny as well because it's a range of people that i'm speaking with and it's middle leaders majority of people and mm. i think sometimes those habits of what they experienced 10 15 20 years ago that work hard work harder mentality yeah is a hard nut to crack with them uh, yeah and i think other i think other industries have done it in terms of flexible work and being more um, about efficiency and effectiveness as opposed to you know, working 80 hour weeks or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've got them to write it down in the planners now. How many hours did you do today? Oh, that's a good course. idea. Tell us what the next day is. Tell us what the next day is. And if you get over yeah. 45, then you're going to be you're going to be tired. The next set of chunk of hours you're going to do isn't going to be very effective. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? It so, is true. So your first sort of thing that captured people's imagination was... A blog that you wrote about well-being bags? Yeah. Tell people yeah. a bit about that one. Yeah, so in my first school, um, when I was promoted to lead practitioner, we um, were going through quite a 
difficult period of transition um, they'd had a tricky offset and we were trying to um, sort of buoy people's spirits and, and get them back on um, a positive sort of vibe within the school and so um, in September um, perhaps it was December I can't quite remember so, some way through the year I decided to create well-being bags to lift everybody's spirits um, and it I don't know where I got the idea from. I feel like um, a, t a kind of confidant teacher um, person that I knew through somebody privately had given yeah. me a teacher survival basket or something um, when I'd started, when I'd first, <clears throat> excuse me, trained as a teacher. Yeah. Anyway, um, I created these wellbeing bags and they were just full of um, nice treats essentially um, they might have had some tissues a packet of biscuits some post-its a pen you know um, and if no, I'm being totally honest sure. not much thought had gone into it I just wanted them to have a nice treat yeah. um, and then I wrote a blog about it on um, Pedigoo Pedigoo uh, website and yeah it just took off it absolutely flew and um, within a few months um, you know quite a lot of people across Across the country and as well in places like Australia and New Zealand yeah and um, they'd they ran with the idea and it just I thought it just went to show how much um, teacher well-being was becoming quite a concern in the country um, and yeah it was really pleasing I guess to see to see it take off like that um, and I guess from small acorns come all sorts of different things as well so that that and a few Pedagoo Hampshire's and teach meets and and pedagogue appearances and then you then you wrote your first book. I did, yeah, I did. I mean, we've done a few few conferences together. We did the Festival of Education, if you remember. Yeah, with that Julie. was good. Yeah, the standing room only that was. That, who was that up against? I can't remember. Will Young. Yes, Will with, Young. With his umbrella. With his umbrella. <laughs> I'm trying to think who else we're up against. Rory Bremner was in there. Yeah. Um, um, David Wilshaw. There were some strange people in that green room as well. Yep. Um, very, very strange conversations. There were a fair few people. Uh, Piers Morgan was in there, wasn't he? Yeah, I chatted to some lad who'd done um, Life Without Levels, I can't remember his name, in the queue for the toilet. <laughs> I was in the queue for the toilet with Mr Wilshaw. <laughs> yeah, somebody from the DFE. I mean, that what was, kind of a green room only has one toilet? <laughs> that was how the other half lived, that one, though, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I guess it was, yeah. I seem to recall we got a bit of stick from people on social media about the title as well, Can Happiness Be Taught? Yes, I do remember that. And and um, since then, I mean, when was that? Was that 2016? Yeah, I think so. So four years down the line, how many how many research pieces and um, journals and things have, have we found on Twitter that suggest that it can? Yeah. You know, have justified it. That was that was Julie Hunter's masterstroke. That one wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, the, she's the head teacher that is Julie Hunter now that's actually living and breathing it all, which is brilliant. Oh yeah, bless her. And then there was some bits of bet as well, wasn't there? We did some bet. I did women ed and talked yeah. about teaching every day there. That was their first conference. Yeah. Um, I have done my own teach meet wellbeing NQT um, conferences, and then I this year I actually went. I've been quite quiet for a while actually and then this year um, Victoria Hewitt, Mrs Humanities, asked me to do Teach Meet Wellbeing Icons. Yeah. So that was something that I did um, during the lockdown. That was actually. a very good presentation I thought that one. Oh thank you. Really good. 
So it was based on the Do Teachers Matter research by Davies and Burgess? Yeah, it was actually, yes, that was one piece of research that I found and it was all about how we need to um, make teachers um, experts and effective in their fields essentially because yeah. that's the most significant and powerful determinant of pupil success. Yeah. Um, but included in that was teacher disposition. So it was for me that particular presentation was all about how we ensure our early careers teachers are looked after and are given that expert advice and are able to you know sustain um effective teaching in yeah. those first five years because we know about the statistics we lose 44 percent leave in the first four years yeah first five years and then one in three another study found that one in three quit after the first five years so that's what that was all about really how to support think, our own some research i was reading last night as well about the habits that people pick up in the first five years for, for teaching and then how hard they are to break. Um, yes, and, and they clatter, don't they? Yeah, I just wonder in terms of wellbeing provision and support for new and recently qualified teachers, if there's enough thought that goes into helping them develop. What was that quote from Professor Rob Cole that you were talking about? The quote from Professor Rob Kerr is what I started that presentation with, which was um, he was he'd com uh, conducted a comparative study um, and benchmarked it across lots of different other countries. And then he'd also looked at English, math and science uh, and compared those. And what he discovered is that since 1994, standards across teaching in the UK had not risen at all and teaching had not improved, which really threw me when I was looking at this because I thought god you know everything that we're doing everything that we try to do um in our schools and you know as a as a nation as well it's it's failing it's not working um and I think it's because the billions of pounds that's been spent on school improvement is, is going to the wrong areas it's going yeah. to improve the wrong things you know new school buildings don't improve standards um and what it doesn't, what it fails to focus on is the, the core business of, of schools, which is, you know, teaching, effective teaching. Mm. That's, that's where, what the whole presentation was about. It's funny, come, come full circle, last night on Twitter, Rob Core tweeted, 10.21, uh, interesting and important paper from Mike Hobbes, Dr. Sam Sims and Professor Becky Allen on habit formation and teaching. Right. So they were saying once formed habits override intentions and they're really hard to break. And that's what that's the key, isn't it? So yeah. the book that I read, um, which contained quite a lot of this research, was called The Teacher Gap. Yeah. Um, and it's fantastic. It talks about um, not enough teachers are coming into teaching um, effective as effective teachers and bridging that closing that gap and bridging that expertise for them is absolutely yeah. crucial in those first five years. So what would you say in your first book? So that was all about a practical approach to well-being that works. Live well, yes, teach well. It was. If you were yeah. thinking about the, the provision for the first five years in your school, what, yep. what, what chapters would you be getting people to have a look at, do you think? I would be getting them to look at definitely how to support their own well-being. Yep. I would be getting them to look at chapter three, which is all about working smarter and how to save time. Um, because we all know that time is up so much through probably administrative tasks that aren't necessarily helpful to making progress. Yeah. And I would probably, um, I would probably think chapter seven, whole school wellbeing for school leaders, 
to try and support those early career teachers. Um, I just think it's really key. One of the things that I, if I were to think about my own early career, I just wasted so much time on things that had no impact on progress. You know, there was so much pseudoscience around at the time. Yeah. And if you remember things like brain gym and um, what was the other one? Uh, multiple intelligences yeah. and, you know, all of that stuff, a triple marking, verbal yeah. feedback yeah. stamps, all of it was absolutely tripe, you know, and I was bogged down in that and engagement rather than, what is actually going to help these students learn and make progress so how do you do that then how do you do that in a school how do you help newly qualified teachers to cut through all of that and then what what do you do to make it better for them i think it's about de developing a training program for them that is effective and is focused on the is focused on research firstly research and evidence-based practice that we know works yeah um and then you you know they are they're catered for because you're you as a school are looking after their needs but also it if they come to the table if they come to school and say oh i've got this thing it's you know it's brain gym you are well equipped to say that's ineffective and isn't going to have an impact on on the student's success essentially yeah. and it's about getting them up with your own knowledge of what you know works and that's that's down to not just you know the itd providers um it's down to the nqt coordinators in schools yeah. it's down to the it's it's not leaving the um, rqts without any support because we know that you're not a fully developed teacher after one year um it's about it's about that five-year journey isn't it and what support you're providing for those for those early career teachers yeah it is interesting isn't it yeah i, I actually think it's front-loaded and yeah. it needs to be far more spread across the early early career pathway and then that whole thing as well, that, that dilemma where you give teachers a high teaching load as well. Yep. When they start out, I yep. still yet to understand the rationale behind that. And multiple subjects, you know, yeah. and different classrooms. They, you know, there's so many things you can do to protect early career teachers yeah. and ensure that they are just focused on the core business of, of being in school, which is really great teaching. Yeah. So much you can do. And then they would improve the quality of their instruction. Yeah. They become more expert, maybe happier at what they do. Yeah. And then maybe stay a little longer in the profession. And have a better balance because yeah. of it. Yeah. I wonder if anybody dream, from the DFE it? listens to these podcasts. <laughs> maybe Phil can put us, put us in touch with somebody who, who wants to listen to maybe some ideas about how to sort a few things out. If only we ruled the world, hey? Yeah. What about, what about the next book then? So that, that was the live well, teach well, a practical approach to well-being that works for the teachers. Now you've got live well, learn well, which I think yeah. is out next week. It's out next week. It's, it's out in seven days. So What's exciting. the date? Just so people want to listen. 15th, 15th of October. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's currently on a, a promotional discount with um, Bloomsbury as well. So if you... If you do want to buy it, you can go to Bloomsbury website and type in live25 yep. the discount code. I like the idea because it mirrors the first one and it matches in with the work of Dr. Sue Ruffy. So that concept that well-being, the teacher well-being and the student well-being are um, different sides of the same coin. The same coin, yep. So you've done that, but it's different sides of the same book. It is, yeah. The chapters mirror each other all the way through. So 
um, with the second book, it's all about how teachers can support student well-being, um, and lots of it is is useful and practical. But some of the chapters that I really enjoy are how to make students effective learners, yeah, um, and how they can support the learning, uh, the well-being of others as well. So it's all about building that sense of community within within a school, and I think that that really is important. And, and the nice bit as well is it's it's about the holistic development of the student as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and that's key, isn't it? You know, we're not we're not exam factories. We're not here just to push out uh, fantastic results. We wouldn't get those fantastic results unless students are, you know, their well-being is catered for as well. And do you think the principles behind the Teacher Five a Day idea, so that report from the New Economic Foundation, Five Ways for Wellbeing, do they work? equally as well with you as a teacher and then can you help students understand how they could work for them yeah absolutely there's, there's definitely ideas contained in the in the second book about how teacher five a day can work for students and how you can apply it to their daily life in school um i think there's even ideas about competitions that you can run um that follow the five strands actually yeah you know, we have five terms but well we have six terms but it fits nicely into yeah. sort of half term plan there's definitely um things you can do to um encourage students using the five strands and i don't know what it's like in your school because what we know is um there's definitely more need um i think some students who have found lockdown difficult yeah found it very difficult and the provision that's available for mental health and well-being support is limited i would say and the more yep. that we can help teachers understand about their mental health and well-being and then in turn help students i think can only be a good thing yeah i think it's i think you're absolutely right um just at the school i'm at now one of the first things we did um when we came back is we had we all were given training on trauma and how to um how to deal with that because we did have um a number of families who were affected by um fatalities because of coronavirus yeah. and you know it was just so helpful and so interesting to to go through that um and i think i think definitely schools and especially leaders need to be looking at ways to support students during this tricky time yeah. we also have um we've got a, a school counselor we're lucky to have an in-house school counselor with us every day and i know they're not not every school is in that position um and she's she's currently running a drop-in session which is working really well for some of our students alongside her usual um, more formal booked appointments. Yeah. But it's, it's definitely had an impact, you know. It's funny, the, um, the NEF have done an update on that five ways to wellbeing report. And, and they're now trying to say that um, governments and other organisations should put a, a significant budget share together to support the development of wellbeing. Oh, really? That's that's. Don't leave it as a separate entity. Don't think. Don't think about it as um, something that happens as a bolt-on, as a as an add-on. Put it into your development plan. Put it into your improvement plan, and then fund it like you would fund any other initiative. Interventions. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah more, I think more of that to come in October half term. I think I'll do a little plug for um, Teacher Five a Day slow chat. There'll be five people that'll be having a chat about that. 
Sounds good. Well, maybe on Twitter some people can, can listen in. Go on then, last couple of bits. I said we get yeah. in 20 minutes. I think we've gone over a little touch. <laughs> You've now ended up getting signed up for another book. And then is there another one potentially coming out? Um, so there's those two. And then um, I'm so excited about this. Um, a, a group of English teachers who are absolutely amazing. They're part of the Lit Drive um organization that Kat Howard runs um, we are we're writing a book all about how to be successful as an English teacher and that's going to be out in April well actually I think the due date is April so it'll be some at some point in 2021 mm-hmm. there'll be an English teacher and um, how to be successful at English teaching um, coming out soon yeah I'm excited about it and I guess that kind of links into the whole conversation doesn't it so lit, lit drive's been so good because it's about people working together yep and then improving people's well-being because it's a lot of joint planning and not reinventing the wheel. And also it's about, you know, expert teaching yeah. and, and experts are, are producing fantastic resources that early yeah. career teachers can take, have a look, tweak yeah. and modify. And, and it's just giving them such a head start. Yeah. Um, and that's what the next book is all about as well. Yeah. I think that network is probably the most effective curriculum support group. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Phenomenal. So that'll be yeah. one to look forward to. And then did I hear rumours that there might be a fourth on the way, maybe? There might be. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm just in discussions about that one. I don't know if I've got it in me to do another one, to be honest. No. Quite hard. Yeah. <laughs> if there's uh, anything um, about leadership and whole skill development, though, I think it's probably worth a roll. I know, I know. Maybe I know. the year after next. Possibly. We'll see. So we said three top tips to finish. Yeah, three top tips. Yeah, I'm going to say three top tips to um, for, for early career teachers. So what I wish I'd done sooner Brilliant. had I known what I know now. So the first one is to build a network, build it really quickly and not necessarily um, in, in your school or your place of work, but actually much wider than that. And I, I can't advocate using Twitter enough. I know it can get a bit a bit whingy at times, usually during half terms that something kicks off on Twitter, but I, I just think it's a wonderful place to network and build build connections. Great. Tip one. Tip two, focus on your subject knowledge and nothing else. Develop your expertise as a teacher because we all know that what you study at degree doesn't always transpire to what you need to do in the classroom. And had I focused on that a lot more than, than the engagement things that I mentioned earlier, I think I would have been a far effective teacher far quicker. Um, yeah. So that's tip two. Good. And tip three is take a break and force yourself to do it. Make sure you get a little mini weekend. I'm off to the Peak District this weekend. I can't wait. Excellent. Um, you, might, you might not want to do it, but if you have it booked in advance, you can't, you know, you can't get out of it. Yeah. And, that's, and then what, that's what happens after you've had that experience as well, though? What happens next week after you've done your Peak District trip? I'm rested. I'm ready to ready to go again. And that's the whole yeah. point of it, isn't it? You know, you, you feel like you need to work your way through the weekend, but actually you, you don't. You need to take a break so that you're ready for work the following week and you've had that rest. Brilliant. Well, there you go. There's the first Teacher Five-A-Day podcast. Really pleased that you managed to um, get, get here to speak to us. Pleased that I managed to make the tech work. I think I made the tech work. We'll see what it sounds like. Um, and thank you very much. You if, are welcome. If ever there was a book to read about how to do things um, for teachers, get the Live Well, Teach Well one. And then I guess the same 
applies. I've read the live well, learn well one. So the, the same thing needs to happen. Um, and it's nice to think about how things have gone and how things have developed and, and much more success to come, I think, for you. And uh, oh, all the people you. that you work with, all of those great Lit Drive people as well. Oh, they're amazing. Shout yeah. out to Lit Drive. Cheers for that. Thank you very much, Abby. You're welcome. And uh, maybe see you when this whole thing's over, potentially. Yeah, definitely. We'll see. Okay, then, mate. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Anyways, cheers. Bye for Bye. now. Bye. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers.